0: This is 105.9 The Region, where parents talk and explore practical, proactive, and evidence-based solutions. This is Where Parents Talk with Leanne Castellino.
1: Great to have you along for our weekly look at parenting from an evidence-based, lived experience perspective. I'm Leanne Castellino. Thanks for joining us. Physical assault causing harm. Sexual assault. Extortion. Robbery. Possessing a firearm. These types of violent incidents are on the rise in schools across Canada at an alarming rate. The country's largest school board, home to more than 230,000 students, is on pace to record the highest number of violent incidents in its schools since 2000. That's when the Toronto District School Board started collecting this data. To discuss violence in schools, we're joined by an educator, researcher, policy analyst and author. Dr. Paul Bennett is director and lead researcher at Schoolhouse Institute and adjunct professor of education at St. Mary's University. He has previously been a teacher, administrator and trustee having worked in both public and private schools. He's authored 10 books and he's also a father. He joins us today from Halifax. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Very pleased to be with you. Thanks for the invitation.
1: It seems to be in the headlines just about every day, depending on where you live in this country. Dr. Bennett, what would you say concerns you the most about the incidence of violence happening in schools or near schools in Canada?
2: The incidence of violence involving students on students and students on teachers is alarming. Uh, it was um, quite an issue uh, up to about 2019 when the Globe and Mail did a feature story on the extent of violence and um, its effects on teachers and educational workers. It was a national story. It got a tremendous amount of attention. Then the pandemic hit and kids were out of school. So the incidents and reporting of violence um, disappeared with the pandemic. But we now know with the resumption of normalcy in schools that there's been a tremendous resurgence and it's, uh, it's everywhere. And my uh, recent story in the National Post, which got on front page, was all about how serious the problem is and how we got to have a problem that is really, really testing teachers, educational administrators, and particularly educational workers on the front lines.
1: When you look at the big picture, what would you say are some of the key root causes of this escalation in incidents?
2: It's a complicated matter, uh, Leanne, and uh, you have to unravel a whole series of factors that have contributed to this problem we have right now. So I'll try to break it down for you as simply as I can for your listeners, so that we can all have a part of this conversation. I think first and foremost, we've been through the most serious global disruption in our lifetimes, and there's tremendous collateral damage. And that is in twofold, It's, it's learning loss, affecting a whole generation of kids and the social and um, I, w- I would say psychosocial effects of being out of school, being lonely and being um, kind of uh, dislocated at a critical time in your life. So that's first. Second, I think uh, we've underestimated how important uh, teen mental health challenges are and it is connected with a social media addiction I'm quite alarmed by what I called TikTok brain. I've written a few stories on this, and I I think there's something that's fundamental that's happened to uh, teens in particular that makes them very, very hard to teach. Uh, Whether we had a pandemic or not, I think we were facing that. I'd say thirdly is uh, family dynamics have changed as a result of being home, uh, people working from home and, I guess we have a precarious economy, where more and more people are not sure of, of the, um, their income stability. So I think that's a factor. In some parts of the country, we have um, we have child poverty, and they suffered the most uh, through the pandemic. So that's complicating the family dynamic. And I think a really important and under recognized factor is a progressive school discipline. Uh, what's happened is um, in 2006 to 2008, there was quite a debate in Ontario about whether Ontario should embrace, um, get rid of zero tolerance policies. So almost overnight, um, suspensions and expulsions were gone and a new form of discipline was put into place. It was called progressive discipline and the public called this. But it it then morphed into trauma-informed discipline uh, Approaches during the pandemic. And now what we've got is a school system that's uh, kind of um, having trouble keeping it in control. And uh, we don't have the tools we need to ensure that there is a proper student behavior. I think it's time we started recognizing that.
1: So let's talk about the tools you suggest are missing. What are they? And putting your principal's hat on for a moment, how would you go about managing this type of student misbehavior and related issues if you had to deal with it in the current climate?
2: I'd start by being clear about um, student um, conduct. And the way it's phrased is student behavior. I make that a priority, uh, student behavior. And don't pretend that it's, it's something that takes care of itself. And we also have a brand new book by Tom Bennett called Running the Room which is, uh, he's the head of Research Ed International. And Tom makes a very clear point that we've lost sight of how important it is to set up structures and to properly guide students and not to apologize for it. Particularly incoming teachers, um, if you look at the faculties of education, there's next to no focus on preparing them uh, on student behavior. And their worries are, when they enter the classroom for the first time, uh, class management is the biggest concern of new teachers, but there's next to no support, and uh, you're almost encouraged to hide it, work it out on your own. And we've got uh, too many complex problems facing uh, teaching and learning today for that to be the case. And uh, you know, we've got kids with complex needs. We have like today's classrooms are much more complicated, and uh, it's it's a shame I think that the current generation of teachers haven't had an opportunity to focus more on how you establish um, s- student behavior, how you scaffold that behavior, how you establish consistency, and how you establish a cooperative relationship with kids on your terms, not, not on theirs. And after the pandemic, there's a serious issue of trying to reclaim the minds and attention of kids. And you're not gonna do it by standing back and saying it's gonna take care of itself.
1: So that's one part of the equation, obviously very important, how teachers are trained and what's going on in the classroom. The other big piece, though, is what's going on in the home and what a parent's role is in this entire equation. Understanding, as you'd mentioned, that the family structure is not straightforward as it perhaps once was. Um, There are different types of families today. What would you say is a parent's role in terms of discipline, and hopefully it then not escalating into, you know, misconduct and unruly behavior, potentially in the classroom.
2: Leanne, I'm I'm more realistic now, after all these years, Um, I'm a firm believer, as you may know, in parent engagement. I think uh, parents have to commit themselves to education. And I think they uh, deserve to be respected. And I think they need to be involved to a higher degree in their children's education. And where they are, these problems aren't as severe. For example, I documented the case of uh, Sarah Murray in um, Nepean uh, High School. Her, her son uh, was uh, going to school. I think he was in grade nine. First year, he shows up and he's beaten up uh, and he's kicked neat in the head. And uh, he goes home, he tries to hide it from his mother. And she, she was so upset that the school did not inform her, did not, uh, and when she confronted the school, they uh, almost, they hushed it up, and they said, we don't talk about traumatic experiences in this community. Now, um, that's little help to a parent. So I think it's incumbent upon school systems to engage parents, to establish better relationships. What better time than after a disruption like we've been through? to reach out and, and re-engage with parents after really keeping them at a distance. I, I You know this social distancing? Mm-hmm. This is not only in the classroom. Social distancing was everywhere. And uh, school systems were not actually embracing parents. They actually, um, it's amazing to me that we went through all of that um, remote learning and you would have expected stronger relationships with parents to come out of it. But, oh, no, there's actually more tension that's come as a result of all of this.
1: This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino, and we are in conversation with Dr. Paul Bennett, educator, researcher, and author, talking about violence in schools. With that example you referenced, the mother in Nepean, it brings up the quote-unquote culture of silence in schools— Does that exacerbate or fuel the problem of school-based violence even further in your estimation?
2: It breeds distrust. And uh, when you make inquiries as a parent, and all of your listeners are parents, so you know when you go to a school and you make inquiries and you get uh, nowhere or you get uh, deferred or you get delayed or you basically get put off or it's all hushed up you begin to have suspicions and then that breeds further distrust. So I think that speaks to a lot of what's going on right now. We need to get to work reestablishing the trust. That's the basis of every relationship that's meaningful between parents and schools. And I'm a huge advocate of um, not only parent engagement, but meaningful uh, roles for parents in schools. And if if they sense they only want us here to give us good news, then parents for the most part won't won't appear. And you'll get about 12 people that will be on the school advisory council. And they will be the only ones that will be prepared to uh, make, to limit their commitment to just supporting the school and its objectives.
1: Could you give us some examples of what you mean when you say meaningful engagement of parents in this particular equation?
2: I am a big believer in um, something that is engagement, not consultation. I'm very, very dubious and I'm concerned about the way engage- engagement is managed. Parents don't want to be managed, they want to be involved, and how you bring them a problem, you don't bring them a packaged solution. If you call a meeting and they quickly sense, they're telling us what they're going to do. They're not asking us for our advice on what they should do. They've already made up their mind. I think that's where a lot of parent engagement falls apart. And um, I'm actually a big believer in deliberative engagement practice. That takes the fear out of the institutions because they're afraid they're gonna lose control if they consult and work with parents. In fact, that that prevents them from meaningful engagement with parents. But what they need to do is to to take take control of engagement and realize that the rules have changed. People want to be asked, what are the problems and what are the solutions much earlier? Uh, For example, uh, to solve a serious problem of student violence in a school and to engage the parents, you have to involve them. And that means you have to be honest, you have to expose yourself a bit and you have to engage them and say, we need your help because we're all in this together. And that's very true when it comes to the cycle of violence that we're now seeing in schools and it, it begins as early as the primary grades now. So, um, I think everyone needs to be involved.
1: When we talk about school-based violence, we're talking about crisis levels of incidents in various cities across the country. Should we have seen this coming?
2: We should have seen it coming. In 2019 and 20, it was a major national issue. There were teacher um, union uh, leaders speaking about this. It It was actually about kids with complex needs and how difficult they were to manage and how educational workers and teachers were living in fear and many were having to wear um, you know protective vests and various other equipment and that um, parents were speaking out about they were frightened for their kids in the class one disruptive kid in one, one incident uh, a school was disrupt class was disrupted 12 times in one month over one student And the solution was to evacuate all the kids and to isolate that child, not to remove that child or move that child somewhere else. So there's some fundamental issues involved in how we're choosing to deal with some of these issues. Everyone believes in inclusion. I do, everyone does. We're not going back, but how you include kids varies. And I think you wanna find the most enabling environment for each child. And that's not necessarily in the same congregate setting.
1: Time for a short break. More of our conversation about violence in schools when we come back. Stay with us.
0: Want to learn more about the show? Email info at whereparentstalk.com. Stick around. Leanne Castellino and Where Parents Talk will be right back on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to Where Parents Talk, Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Here's Leanne Castellino.
1: Welcome back. Depending on where you live in Canada, the issue of escalating violent incidents in and near schools has been described as being at a crisis level. Our guest, Dr. Paul Bennett, is a policy analyst, researcher, author, and former school administrator. Dr. Bennett, let's address discipline for a moment. How much does a lack of adequate consequences for misbehavior or inappropriate discipline for, let's say, less severe incidents, potentially invite more violent behaviors down the road?
2: Low-level disruptions are the kryptonite of a teacher's existence. It slowly sets in, and before long, you don't have control of your own class, and you're kind of um, trying to keep up with them. It's the, the tables are shifted. So it begins with low-level disruptions. But well, what you're what you're describing is uh, we need to have a full and I would say open discussion about positive behavior supports as a model for uh, the behavioral codes across Canada. There's one common approach that's taken over. It's called progressive discipline, but it's actually positive behavior supports. So um, it's all designed to reduce suspensions and expulsions because that was seen to be what, what we needed to get rid of because um, the kids who were being suspended and uh, that were being expelled happened to be um, ethnocultural minorities, blacks and indigenous kids disproportionately. So we did do that, but we created a far bigger problem which involves all students. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to get them to cooperate. And particularly after they've been used to being on their own over a, a two year period where they were more or less left on their own for long periods of time. And um, there's now the complicating factor of, of um, cell phone addiction, which makes it next to impossible to gain and hold the attention of kids. I've spoken about this and I've also written about that we need to teach habits of attention to our in our faculties of education. We need to uh, start teaching the things that we've taken for granted again, because we have to rebuild what is missing in the school system.
1: So what would a reasonable starting point look like if you're a parent and then separately, if you're a teacher or a school administrator to meaningfully address this issue?
2: Student behavior needs to be in the center of the plan and we need to recognize that uh, that learning loss and the pandemic have caused significant um, after effects. And we are not going to be able to um, simply return to what we had before the pandemic. There need to be changes in the way we manage schools, the way we engage parents, and the way we, yes, discipline children. And we need to start talking about that and stop pretending that It's all going to go away. And I I think that's fundamentally important. Having said that, I think there's, it's high time that, um, PEBIS, which is, um, which is called positive education behavior supports, which is universally used across North America. I think that it's coming to an end, um, because it's not working. And, uh, teachers are the ones who are going to bring an end to it because they are themselves very frustrated. Most of the feedback I get from the school system is from teachers who are absolutely fed up with the lack of control with their way their lives are um, kind of um, they're not being properly uh, managed because they they're not feeling good about what they're doing and then we have a whole um, group of educational uh, educational workers whose lives are kind of threatened and they um you know they do come home bruised they do come home um, actually uh, not wanting to go into work. So we, and the, the caseloads for uh, WorkSafe BC, the, um, uh, you know, in, in Manitoba, they've declared teaching to be a high risk occupation and working in schools as being similar to working on a construction site or, or a prison or, or in a hospital ward. So I think there's changes are going on, and we do need to recognize that changes have to come from within, too. You can't just point fingers. Here's one thing I don't think is helping teachers. I don't think when um, leaders of teacher unions try to make out that it's all about more resources, it's all about smaller class sizes, or it will be go away if we had more learning supports. That's not going to work. The problem is far um, deeper, more entrenched than that. So, as well as I think they're they're they have the best of intentions, and certainly they're they're, they're altruistic in saying this. And you know, many parents buy this. Yeah, you know, there's uh, some people who think that adding psychiatrists or so- psychologists. Why, you know, the report that was released last week that said the answer to Ontario school problems was more psychologists? No? Oh, come on. They work, for the most part, in board offices. They don't work directly with teachers and students, many of them. So I I think, why are principals asking for more uh, psychologists? Shouldn't they be asking for help in the schools with the kids on a day-to-day basis? And shouldn't they be taking more ownership of, of, of bringing the schools back to what they should be, so they're safe, secure, and meaningful places for learning. I think that's what's at stake here. So I, I'm, I'm puzzled by why the principals would be advocating um, more psychologists. If yeah, I, I know many mental health professionals, they wouldn't recommend that. Now, yes, we need teen mental health curricula that's administered by teachers with kids, we don't necessarily need more professionals. I don't think that's really the answer. And that's, that's a response to much of the news media that's been going on. I can't believe how much coverage that report got. And I don't think it addresses or is aligned with the problems we have today.
1: So are we at a tipping point on this issue in this country?
2: I have a lot more faith in our school institutions and our educators and I think, by and large, they will, they will come through. But what I'd like to say is that we've got fists and knives in our schools. We don't have guns, and we don't have many shootings. Um, and I think those who are, are making more of the shootings, I think they're doing us a disservice. They're isolated, and thank God they're not um, too prevalent. And let's let's keep it that way but we're talking about how we um, establish a new way of doing business in schools so that um, there's more cooperation there are clearer rules there's more consistency and then people aren't inclined to go and take liberties um tracy Byencor is someone i have great respect for at the university of ottawa she's canada's leading authority on teen mental health and bullying and I when she talks I listen and here's what she's saying is knives are a problem and increasingly a problem and fists and we do need to manage that. She also said we need more adults in schools. And that that's not necessarily police officers. We need more adults and she said that um, you know where there is more surveillance in uh, dark corridors and in locker rooms and so on. And yes, in the washrooms, because you know, all the violence that we know, all of these incidents tend to be in hallways, uh, stairwells and washrooms. And uh, you know, there are teachers that are terrified to go into washrooms now. They won't, they, they wouldn't, you couldn't get a teacher to go in there because they're, they're afraid of what they're going to see. And uh, just to give you a bit of an insight, I was in a school like that and I was on duty And uh, the students told me, don't go in there. Don't go in that washroom. I won't say where it was, it's in Ontario. And I went in there and I caught a student, um, you know, smoking marijuana and flushing it down the toilet. And I ran them in and they said, don't do it. You know, you're gonna pay for this. I said, what do you mean pay for it? Well, um, don't you know that uh, you don't do that? (laughs) Now, this wasn't yesterday. This was 30 years ago. So it's been going on for a long, long time. But what we've got now is the violence and the students taking liberties in class in front of the teachers without fear of any repercussions. That is new.
1: Dr. Bennett, what would you say keeps you optimistic that this growing problem will be addressed in the short term in Canada?
2: I have faith in some of our leadership. I think Karen Littlefield of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation is on the right track. She's speaking up about this serious issue. And for once, she's not just talking in terms of the threat it is to her her members or the teachers. She's very much aware that it involves kids and that it it has to start with kids. We've got to make them safe and teachers will be safe if kids are safe in schools. And we've got to kind of make sure we get that right. I also think that there is hope that, um, you know, we might have more leadership people with backbone that are going to say, it's time to stand up and change the way uh, things are. Let's face it, there's an awful lot of uh, uh, momentum right now behind getting coming to grips with this and not turning a blind eye. So we have an opportunity. And I think it might've been the pandemic where we we, uh, realized, you know, um, we've gotta be prepared for a different world. And we should be, we do need to take action to make sure that our schools are safe and uh, for everyone.
1: Dr. Paul Bennett, Director and Lead Researcher at Schoolhouse Institute, Policy Analyst and Author, thank you for your time and your insight today.
2: Oh, my pleasure.
1: Remember to watch the full video interview with today's guest at whereparentstalk.com. The podcast version is also available at 1059theregion.com and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Leanne Castellino. Thanks for listening hope you'll join us next time.
0: Sign up for Leanne's parenting newsletter and so much more at whereparentstalk.com. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region.